0: Welcome to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. I got a mic thirst so big that I flow like my pipes burst. Blind signatures, you don't see how it goes, so disappear forever like Satoshi Nakamoto. Intrepid when I rep it, every second y'all are wrecked. If I said it, then I meant it. Every method is decentralized. Tell the venture guys they need to their spies we keep it open when we're coding see the tension rise let that sink in feed it out like backwash the world is teetering on the brink. shout out to Matt Walsh. today you can be your own bank so thank me later you turn sides against the empire like darth vader yo we're playing for keeps seeking a pristine win our guest this week is the inimitable christine kim ain't never been another man with my number damn yo i'm smothering every wonderkin that thinks they have a plan as always, I'm your host, Alex Thorn, head of Firmwide Research at Galaxy Digital. Thank you for listening to Galaxy Brains. We have a great show for you today. As I said, we're talking with Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. She's back from Denver and uh, the east Denver Conference, the biggest Ethereum conference of the year by far. We'll talk to Christine about what her takeaways from the conference were. Um, And what to expect from the upcoming upgrades on Ethereum. We'll also check in with our friend Bimnet BB from Galaxy Trading to talk markets. Jay Powell, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, speaking before both houses of Congress this week, materially impacting markets. But before we get into all of that, I need to please remind you to look at the link uh, to the disclaimer on the podcast notes. And note that none of the information in this podcast constitutes investment advice and offer, recommendation, or solicitation by Galaxy Digital or any of its affiliates to buy or sell any securities. Yo, this is a good beat. I think we're going to have a good show. So let's get right into it. Let's go now to our friend Bimnet Abibi uh, from Galaxy Trading. As always, welcome, my friend. Thanks for having me. Yeah, great to have you here. Fun day this week, fun week this week, I should say. Jay Powell himself, the um, you know fiduciary of the Fed, the... the Most the,
1: important man in markets.
0: The leader of the Federal Reserve, the chairman of the Federal Reserve. He is testifying in his semi-annual updates to Congress. He did yep. the Senate, today's Wednesday. Um, he did the, uh, the Senate Banking Committee on Tuesday, yesterday... I think he may still be, as we record this, speaking now before the House Financial Services Committee. What are we hearing from Mr. Powell?
1: Um, Well, it was a pretty big sort of hawkish tilt um, that we had yesterday from his prepared remarks. Um, Basically, he's putting 50 basis point increase for the March FOMC on the table. Um, He's also reiterating higher for for longer. Um, And essentially, he gave a huge policy update speech um, when, you know, the market wasn't really expecting that much. Um, so it was a pretty big deal. Um, we've had a dramatic repricing of, of, of front end interest rates, the dollar and, and risk markets, uh, more broadly after, um, his comments yesterday. Um, I think they were about as meaningful as an FOMC meeting, a Jackson hole meeting. Um, it was, it really, you know, kind of took me a little bit, but by, by surprise. Um, but I think, the 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 overall message is entirely consistent with what they've been saying, which is they're going to be data dependent. and what did we have? We just had a string of hot employment price. Um, you name it, all the data has been been really strong. And so, What's the Fed's response function? What's the only thing they can do is jack up front-end interest rates. And now, as we sit here, um, terminal rates are pricing at around 565 basis points Wow. Um, and 75 basis points for the next two meetings. So uh, some combination of 25 and 50 uh, between uh, wow. the, the, the next two meetings. So it's been pretty dramatic. Um, and you've had you know, S&P b- break 4K. You know, Bitcoin's testing 22K right now. Um, you know. The dollar is broken out. Euro broke 106, dollar yen through 136. Um, and so it's been it's been a very dramatic um, move. Yeah, dollar is highest that it's DXY, highest that it's been since November. Yeah, absolutely. And it's it's one of those pain trades where uh, a lot of folks were positioned this year um, to take advantage of dollar weakening. Right. As kind of we've, you know, might have had hit peak terminal rates. Right. And, you know, the the forces abroad um, we're gonna lead to more inflation and ECB might have to hike more, et cetera. So, so the big theme was short dollars going in and now it's the complete opposite. Right. So folks are off sides, don't really have it. Um, and the last thing I'll say about that is as the dollar is insanely powerful right now, you get paid carry because you know rates are so at 565. Yeah. It's a risk off hedge in case the world is like, we gotta sell all risk assets, it's gonna do well in, in that environment. Right, And so it's, a currency that's just got this unique combination of of being a hedge, but also being a hedge that pays. Yeah, and so it's it's really um, you know starting to get very compelling just to sit in dollars and just yeah. sit in overnight rates or short, right. short dated duration. Goodness gracious,
0: we have talked you talked about this mm-hmm. interesting character uh, um, these properties and characteristics of the dollar outs it's trading. Um, the uh, but so if they raise fifty, yeah, the next meeting. They mm-hmm. already raised twenty-five, right? Yeah. The last meeting. It's
1: a big so, like, shift in policy. That, that would be
0: very dramatic, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and that's what the market in, is pricing right in
1: now. In theory, like you, you, the way to describe it is the bar is really high for the Fed to go from, like, communicating that they need to go from fifty to twenty-five, doing that, and then going back to fifty. Right. Uh, like that might throw their credibility into yeah. into question a little yeah. bit. However, at the same time, like. If they don't react to much hotter than expected data, and they're telling you that they're data dependent, right, right, like, and they also there are tons of Fed members that believe in the um, sort of impact of, of front loading, which is just doing more of of what you're going to do sooner rather than than later, yeah, uh, like then they would also go against their their credibility if they don't go go fifty. So it's crazy. They're they're stuck, uh, but Powell, you know, yesterday was like. Hey. Like we'll uh, go fifty if we well, have well, to. Well, what well, it's 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 to the point where the data has to miss really badly between now and, and March twenty second or the next FOMC for us not to go fifty. Interesting. That's how he set it up. Uh that's how set he set it up. Basically he set it up like
0: fifty's the likely outcome, absent very different yeah. data.
1: And then the way to think about it is if he chooses to go twenty-five and the market's giving him forty, right, and he leaves fifteen bips on the table. That's almost an easing of monetary policy in a way. Right. So uh, Which he doesn't want to be doing. He doesn't want to be doing. Yeah. The other thing I'd be remiss not to mention is the historic levels of curve inversion that we have now just seen. We are talking about a two-tens curve that has now broken 100 basis points. I think as we sit now, we're at 107 basis points of inversion. Explain what this is real quick for our listeners if they don't know the inversion here. Um, So essentially – what these curves measure is the difference uh, between interest rates among- At different durations. At different durations. So the popular ones to look at are like two-year versus 10-year, or two-year versus five-year, yep. um, or two-year versus- 30. So when it inverts, now
0: typically you're supposed to get paid more to hold debt for longer, right? That's the Correct. idea? Correct. And, and, and the opposite is true now. You're getting paid. Why is that?
1: Uh, it, one, it, it's a belief in, in the future path of Fed policy. So- the the market thinks that if you jack up rates to you know five six percent etc what is that going to do That's going to slow the economy down That's going to slow growth down That's going to slow investment down Right and eventually the Fed will have to cut rates as a as a response to that And so what the ten year point is is kind of telling you is that you know the front end interest rate policy is not going to last forever The Fed's going to have to cut things down and that growth. Um, is going to be slower as a function of of where the damage that front-end interest rate policy is going to do now. Mm-hmm. And it also has to do with you know expectations of where long-run inflation are going to be, right? So right now, one-year inflation break-evens are around 3.5%, and two years are around 3.5%. So the market's telling you, even though the Fed wants to get to 2% inflation, that it's only gonna get to three and a half with in the, in monetary policy.
0: In the next two years. In the next Pricing two years. Pricing in what they expect from monetary policy.
1: Correct. Yeah. Which is like I mean, if I was the Fed, I like it would I mean it's, Freaks me out a little bit because because I'm jacking the, the market's telling me you got to jack rates to 560 and you still won't be at yeah your you inflation won't hit goal. your
0: target is what the market is saying
1: yeah and right. now the market can be wrong for all sure the time for right? sure but but right now looking I at I mean that, it's the
0: best prediction market we've got right I mean correct. there's no other real correct. way to guess here I mean and then on the on the inversion the level yes. of this two tens inversion because yeah. I saw some stuff about this some some researchers were saying that like the other times that it invert that this level of inversion happened was like 1929 and like and like the 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 crisis in the '70s, and then also in the '80s, right before Volker like did his thing. So like very demonstratively, uh, historically speaking, yeah, always I mean, precedes like a major economic problem.
1: Yeah, correct. Uh, so it it's tricky. At the same time, like we have this issue right now because the economy is so hot. Right. Right. We're talking about historic levels of unemployment two job openings per unemployed person. That's crazy. <laughs> uh, and, you know, uh, prices that are still going up in, in, right. in, the, so it's in not, the non-shelter it, services. Which isn't in the same as
0: the other times. And, and frankly, every and, time is different,
1: right? You could have every an exception time, to Every report. time is different. And to be honest with you, like, there, there's a reasonable case to be made that you know, the growth trajectory of the US is is totally fine, right? Just think about the the kind of things that that are happening, the structural things that have happened post-COVID, onshoring being a huge one of those things, right? You're bringing back domestic production, into a really tight labor force. <laughs> right. Uh, and you've also just had, like, like generally a lot of underinvestment over, over the past couple of years. I mean, energy companies are being, like, a big part of it. Like, what was the thing to do over the past couple of years? It was to take advantage of low interest rates. How did you take advantage of low interest rates? You issue a lot of debt, and you buy back your stock, or you issue a lot of debt, and you, uh, you know, issue a dividend. Right. Right. Not necessarily. Reinvestment. Reinvestment. And, yeah. Right. And so the U.S. I think, you know, structurally is headed towards a, a period of onshoring, reinvestment, et cetera. And now, you know, will the interest rate sensitive parts of the economy slow down? Yes, absolutely. They have to. And just mathematically, like homes will get cheaper if mortgage rates rise. Right. Few people will buy them. They'll be, yeah. They have to. Uh, but that's not the, the whole economy. Other stuff looks good though. Other stuff looks just fine. Yeah. And that's why, like, like right now, um, you know, I I, I keep struggling with this idea, like, are you supposed to be long interest rate or short interest rates? It's it's really tough. Uh part of me is like, can the world like can the US economy really handle like six percent inflation, et cetera? And I really, I really do think that a lot of the perception that the market has, and, and this is just kind of me self-reflecting, is just a function of just the environment we've been in for the past couple of years, right? I, I've never seen low int- like high interest rates in my entire career right. for the most Many part. Many people haven't. Many people haven't. Yeah. I've also been you know, very U.S. focused. When you talk to anybody that is based abroad, especially in EM, they know inflation is a tricky issue like they I've seen it their whole lives. It's right. not something that just goes away. Right. And so I think there's a lot of like just bias in the US that that's just used to like low inflation. Right. Low and if it gets high rates. then of course it will have the, the, to come down. Yeah, of course because the economy will correct and blah like, blah blah. That's blah, how blah. we do it here. That's how we do it. But but I think more and more as time progresses we're like holy shit the US economy is just fine with interest rates at 5% plus. <laughs> uh however, you know I, I do think you know you are supposed to to kind of realize that there are unintended consequences to to monetary policy, and we are at uncharted in uncharted territory with respect to certain things, and that you know, anytime you raise the cost of capital from zero to six percent, there are going to something's going to happen. Yeah, right. If you're in the in the venture world, for example, or in the in the private world, I mean, you really like like it's hard. why are you going? Why are you taking the illiquid risk? Uh, at high valuations... For like 10 years in some cases. When you can get 6% on (laughs) low duration stuff. Yeah. Those business models are going to be fundamentally challenged. And also, you know, basically business models that have lots of liabilities in the front end or floating liabilities, right? And like, you know, one of the better examples is that I used to deal with a publicly listed company. Their whole business model was finance in the front end and buy assets in the back end. And all of a sudden... They're totally underwater. It's like They're, reversed. It's reversed. Yeah, and and this and if you think about it, like the Fed's balance sheet right now, that's exactly what it is. It's they have this oh, these liabilities, which is they got to pay these banks, you know, interest on excess reserves. What are interest on excess reserves? That's going to be you know top of the band. really high, right? And and what do they have on their balance sheet? A ton of assets, like long duration, long duration assets, is, paying yeah, less. Yeah. yeah, exactly. I think the average duration of the Fed bond portfolio is probably like six years, seven years, yeah. something like that. Um, but they've got overnight rates to pay. People. They've got to pay the banks. Yeah, they got to pay the banks on all their wow. excess interest. And so you're, that's that's how you become insolvent.
0: Yeah. Something's got to give ultimately, you know, yeah.
1: uh, but luckily it's paper losses. And currently
0: right now you're saying it mostly looks OK in the economy. If, if it's not even maybe OK, maybe even great. If everything. Looks jobs. Fine. People have jobs.
1: Here's here's the other I mean, real
0: wages are still like below inflation. Right. I mean, they're like they're yes,
1: re- we have wages, wages have had wages been have grown. It. Yes, they have. But here's the yeah. thing. So it's it's different. Like you have to think about it like from what time period, because I think the the wage growth is, has been a recent phenomenon, right? Uh, versus like there were periods where folks were just not getting raises to keep up with it. Well, there was no inflation, so there weren't no no raises. Um, so you really have to focus on on right. the, the the time period. Uh, but yeah, I mean, 100 million Americans because of the Social Security cost of living adjustments, they just got a raise, right? Mm-hmm. And that's. Not necessarily wages, but that's it's money in your pocket, money in your pocket, right um oh, it's, a lot I of mean, the they're... I
0: saw a lot of the unions have negotiated significant raises like Absolutely. I saw the airlines are, are... Uh, yeah, so there are a lot of people who are making more money too. so but I just mean to bottle that all up like like you said, like there is there is structurally a lot of structural positivity in the economy, yes, and it can clearly
1: it appears at the moment to be bearing these rates. Um, and and, and yeah. the other risk I think is really important to highlight is you have a nation of 1.3 billion people that is just reopening. I know, China. Uh, yeah. Powell is being asked about it. But there are huge risks to the commodity complex. Right. Like, God forbid, oil starts spiking again. And all of a sudden, people are like, wait, gas prices are up. And there's a pass-through uh, feedback loop of energy prices into the prices of everything. Yep. And, and then Not to like, mention
0: oil is a component in many other places materials right like an absolutely m- plastic yeah. like all, yeah.
1: all of the above and so there's still upside risks
0: this is such a tricky man oh it's my tricky. god
1: it is, it is what's it feel yeah. like
0: i mean i mean you're you know you're not like you, you you're you've been in markets a long time but you know not for decades yes so um and like you said your whole career has been in a low interest rate environment along with basically absolutely. anyone who's yeah worked in low the last interest 15 rates years are low
1: vol uh, this is d- this very is, different this is yeah, a
0: very different
1: tricky yeah, uh environment. absolutely um you know i think is it more fun it is really fun. Like, just as a trader, I it, mean. As like, a trader, it is so much fun, interesting stuff you happening. You just have to, like, the, it's just so dynamic that you just have to adjust your risk, right? Like, trading 10K of DVO1, like, you know, three years ago is very different than trading 10K of DVO1 now. Like, when the stuff moves three times more, yeah. you got to be taking a third the risk, right? And so it's it's very dynamic, um, and it, it really keeps you on your toes.
0: Yeah, love it. Bimnet abB BB, Galaxy Trading, as always, my friend, thank you so much. Pleasure. Let's go to our friend Christine Kim from Galaxy Research. It's been a little while since you've been on the podcast. Great to have you back as always.
2: Thank you, Alex. It's great to be back.
0: Yes. And um, so we're going to talk about a couple things, but you were at, let's start with ETH Denver, this giant conference that happened last week. Um, You were there, you spoke at the conference and moderated a panel. What's your big takeaway? I mean, it looked like a pretty big conference on Twitter.
2: Yeah, I was so impressed with how massive the conference was. They switched from... Um, the sports castle venue to the National Western complex men- venue which is actually a venue for cattle and ranch and to showcase like livestock wow so they they filled every square footed or every square fo- foot yeah. foot of <laughs> this massive like barn almost wow. um, with a bunch of of crypto People And there were like five different districts. They had all the DeFi booths in one area, all of the infrastructure development in another area. Um, So I was really impressed with the scope of Mm -hmm. um, all of the conversations that were happening. It's like they touched on every single aspect of Ethereum, like protocol development and um, app development.
0: So did this feel like um, I think the last one that you went to was DevCon, which Mm -hmm. is the develop more developer focused conference and was in Bogota Columbia this year, that was like six months ago. like How is this different than that?
2: Honestly, the nature of the conversations were pretty similar. I felt like after DevCon, it was right after the merge, and so people were still really enthusiastic with how successful that was, and they were looking ahead to, okay, what's next? I think there's still a big question mark about what's the big narrative on Ethereum. And at Denver, you could see a lot of the same, like, mini narratives around ZKEVMs, the roll-up future, um, what we're going to do about MEV, um, you know, what's after the merge. So I think there were there were just a lot more of the same discussions happening at ETH Denver, Um
0: but like the composition of the conference right this is a little bit more of like an exuberant like community conference as opposed to like a developer focused one right
2: yeah devcon was much more focused i think on protocol development whereas east denver you it's had like
0: big Ten ethereum everyone's invited mm-hmm. yeah
2: mm-hmm. you had the vcs you had all of the the DApp d- developers um it was it was quite massive yeah <laughs>
0: And, and um, it was fun, right? I mean, I saw some pictures of parties and stuff, people dressed up in funny costumes. Like, you know, obviously I saw the, uh, the, the I'm not going to say cringy, but some people said cringy opening singing stuff. Were you at that?
2: Uh, no, thankfully I, I skipped <laughs> out on that. <laughs> I, it was
0: better than past years. I'll give it to them, though. I, some of the past songs have been even worse, but this one was kind of funny. But anyway, like it, it was, a, it seemed like a fun, lively time.
2: It, yeah, it really was. I think the the events that were happening were, were quite, it made me feel like we weren't in a bear market. It was like people right. were completely back, just like spending all their money on like these events and hosting these events. Um, It was it was a good time. It was yeah. A good time.
0: And okay, so I want to pick up on a thread that you mentioned um, about the sort of narratives that between Bogota and Denver, Um, you know, the big topics of the day, right, for Ethereum. I mean, obviously, you know, we thought, the merge in Shanghai, which you know, I would say formally completes the merge, right? By by finally, you know, it's sort of the last piece of the puzzle for the specific merge and switch to proof of stake. Um, but was that like a the main thing that people were talking about, um, or or these other big issues, right? Like um, privacy, decentralizing, you know, block builders, MEV, etc. Like, have we made progress since Bogota? Like, it's been about six months.
2: I think there's been incremental progress. And surprisingly, yeah, the focus wasn't on Shanghai. The focus wasn't on staked ETH withdrawals. Everyone, I think, has has already thought of this as, like, like you said, the last step towards completing the merge. Um, it's the easiest step of completing the merge. Um, there doesn't seem to be a lot of concern around cell pressure immediately after Shanghai. There doesn't seem to be quite a lot of concern around the technical risks around Shanghai. Um so the discussions kind of felt fragmented like you you if you were in if you're kind of a dapp developer in defi you're searching for what is the next innovation in defi if you're kind of like a mev searcher or builder you're thinking about the incentives of the mev supply chain so a lot of the events and a lot of the discussions i felt like were kind of siloed um but it just goes to show that that outside of ethereum protocol development so much more is happening um and for Ethereum to succeed, you kind of need, um, you kind of need the input and the continued progress of all these other like collectives.
0: And there were a lot of them.
2: And there were a lot, and it was really hard to keep track of like the incremental progress being done in each of them. And there wasn't like a big milestone that any of these groups had reached. Right. Um, so I think I was kind of bouncing around, thinking like, "Wow, Ethereum feels like a sprawling city. Yeah. Like it feels like you you built a technology." that has now created so much more innovation, permissionless innovation to happen on top of Ethereum. Um, But unfortunately it doesn't seem like, you know, there's a clear path towards like incentivizing continued innovation in one area over the other, or like the success of one segment of the community over another. It just feels very, discombobulated. Everyone's just
0: moving in a direction (laughs) in some direction. There's a lot of people. Yep. A lot of people building stuff. Exactly. A whole bunch of different ideas that are all getting built, basically. Yeah. And so not one cohesive narrative you felt like coming out of there.
2: Not at all. And I think that I mean, one thing, though, I will say is there does seem to be this this focus on more infrastructure development over app development of like We can't build the super app on Ethereum now because there's no infrastructure to support it. Either wallet infrastructure or just the protocol can't sustain a high level of user activity like it doesn't scale. Um, So there does seem to be quite a lot of focus on if we're able to build the right infrastructure, like the right rails, then maybe that'll be the catalyst for what's next in DeFi, what's next in NFTs, what's next in gaming um so there was i did think there was more conversation still around infrastructure development than app development but i know you hate that alex and you're always like we don't need better infrastructure we need apps
0: i mean we may need both um but (laughs) yes it's usually like i it's it comes down to this question about whether or not we're so early right people are like often not just in the ethereum world at all but across the cryptocurrency landscape right long-term bulls are like oh we're so early the bitcoiners say this all the time too And I'm just looking around being like, are we early or like, is it like, shouldn't we as a a general ecosystem really be providing things people want to use? Right. And when I look at the space, like I see Bitcoin as a global money. I see um, Ethereum as the dominant platform for smart contracting and the apps that people like so far at scale is like DeFi and NFTs. And I really don't see anything else yet. And by the way, that's a lot. I mean, I think. If you Have Bitcoin, ETH, DeFi, and NFTs, like you know, obviously, you have st- and then maybe stable coins, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but like that's that's gotten us here. Like, I mean, I don't know, like, y- you can't just yet another DeFi app to me is like not not going to move the needle on global adoption. So, it's not that I don't like infrastructure, and I and I hear this all the time too. Um, there was a, a protocol that launched, and I talked to an investor in that protocol, and I said, like, aren't you know, what's the thesis here? And they're like, well, you know, like there's there's all these apps that we need like much higher throughput to do. And I'm just sort of like, isn't that what every single protocol investor said literally over the last 10 years, right? Like is this now, I, who, yes, it is what they all said. Maybe it's still true, right? And I think Ethereum, I mean, you know, the hope here, I think, is that the roll-up ecosystem can be that.
2: Yeah, we'll be that catalyst. Yeah.
0: So it's not that I don't want infrastructure. It's just that I sort of think like we really we need both. Maybe we need both. The argument was that like we can't get the killer app until we have the infrastructure to support it. I I don't know if that's true. Yeah. Um, But if it is true, then of course we need it. I'm just I just feel like there's been a lot of thinkery on blockchain design, and at some point thinkery. Thinkery. uh, Shout out to Walt Smith, I think, who created this word. (laughs) Um, And I think there needs to be apps that people want. And, and I feel like, you know, a lot of effort has been put in on the blockchain design. And I don't maybe I guess there's been a lot of effort on the apps, too. I guess I'm just asking a lot here. Someone make the killer global adoption app. Um, I guess it's not that easy. But yeah. 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 So there are they are building infrastructure, though. The yeah. roll-ups well represented there and people building stuff like that, all the ZK. And-
2: roll-ups were very well represented at East Denver. Um, but, again, because of the massive size of this event, you know, they were just one small part of the collective right. of this mosaic of so many different groups there. Um, actually, now that I'm talking about this, the one group that I d- think was a little underrepresented in all of these topics was regulation. Every time I brought up, you know, like what – we think is going to happen to stablecoin regulation, what we think might happen to liquid staking derivatives. Right. Um, not a lot of Not a lot there. Of, um, of, of concern, really, from anyone I met about regulation, just thinking that regulators would eventually come to embrace the technology over time. But until then, like.
0: Whatever, um, basically? Like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, like, these, to be ask clear, for these are the builders pri- Yeah, and these are the builders primarily. They're not the necessarily the investors or the institutions primarily. Right. This is more of a people building stuff in the Ethereum world conference. So I guess it's not, you know, I mean, the, you can still permissionlessly deploy software.
2: Yeah. So and I think there's whether a... or not people
0: are allowed to use it, I guess, is a different question.
2: That too. And there's a lot more technology, I think, being built on Ethereum in a permissioned way, like creating web front ends that are only available in certain countries, um, interacting like allowing your your technology to only be available to non-US customers etc that yeah. ki- those kinds of kind of So uh, there've
0: been some innovations on that side of the uh if we can call them that. Um, yeah,
2: I don't know if we can call them innovations, <laughs> but more so like tiptoeing around the big elephant yeah. in the room. Yeah. yeah.
0: And and remember we wrote about um OFAC uh when they when the Tornado Cash was sanctioned and and this was a big question for us as well. Yeah. Um and and not even sort of just regulation but the the recent um Oasis, the what they called a self counter exploit, where they used the multi sig to upgrade their DeFi apps, uh, their DeFi apps such that they could then seize money from the wormhole hacker, um, which was like a week or two ago. Um, that plus some of the regulatory stuff, like has there been, did you get a sense that there's a strong, I mean, because you just talked about some of the per- more permission sort of solutions. Is there a turn in favor of more hardened, decentralized solutions as well? In your mind, like was that a vibe that was there like, you know, we should, for example, not have admin keys or decentralize more or like an increased focus on like decentralizing block builders or validators or whatever. Like is that is that I mean, obviously, is decentralization alive and well in the Ethereum mindshare or is it even accelerating?
2: I wish it was accelerating. I wish more people talked about what happened to the Oasis DeFi app. I wish more people continued to talk about the concerns around OFAC sanctioning Tornado Cash. I the wish implications there, of yeah, it, yeah. I wish there had been more talk around there hasn't been a ton of movement towards censor, like making Ethereum more censorship resistant in light of all of these like Actions in light of all these like regulatory developments. Um, Again, those kinds of conversations that I tried, that I I feel like some people tried to bring up at the conference um, were promptly struck down. Like I don't think it was a it was people just weren't
0: interested in talking about. They weren't, and I
2: think people were more focused on like heads down building. Yeah, and I think it should have been a more important conversation. It should have.
0: Yeah, we've talked about this, you and I, about that we think in general it should be an important conversation. Yeah. Um, All right, let's move on a little bit. It sounds like it was a great time. Um, Check out Christine's talk. You can find it on, like, the ETH Denver YouTube page and the website. That was really good. About Shanghai. Yes. The forthcoming upgrade on Ethereum um, where staked ETH will finally be able to be unlocked. There are people who staked their ETH on the Beacon Chain in the end of 2020, I believe, uh, that it's been there for more than uh, two and almost two and a half years Without being able to withdraw it or the rewards that they've earned,
2: Mm -hmm.
0: that should come to an end uh, with the rollout of Shanghai, which will enable withdrawals when?
2: Right now, the latest estimations are second week of April, early April. For
0: straight up mainnet activation.
2: Yeah, for yeah. mainnet activation. Developers have made a ton of progress getting Shanghai ready um, as soon as possible. Honestly, I thought that it was going to be summertime by the time Ethereum got to its next upgrade after the merge. But developers have, have really been barreling through all of the test nets, all of the um, kind of preparations to get all the software clients Prepared, ready, ready for this upgrade. Um, so the next big milestone in this like testing journey is the Guerli upgrade. That's the last public testnet that Ethereum developers are going to be launching the Shanghai upgrade on. And if that goes smoothly, they'll move on to mainnet. Um, so Guerli is scheduled for. I feel like it's March twelfth.
0: So it's soon. That's okay. like next week or the week after. Yeah. I
2: might have to double check my notes on that. But, but anyways. In, in the next couple scheduled, weeks Yeah. They scheduled the date. And from that date, you're going to assume that like developers give about four weeks until mainnet. Got it. Um, which is how we get the second week of April date. Got it. Um, so, so Gwerly, I think one interesting thing is that developers have been testing Shanghai on several different testnets before Gwerly. And Gwerly, I think, is less of a testnet for developers and more of a t- Testnet for infrastructure providers, for staking pools, for staking as a service like centralized exchanges, for entities like Lido and Rocket Pool. I think developers are quite confident about the code, but the question is, is the community ready for this upgrade? wallet providers particularly need to be able to to update the balances of users for withdrawals Mm -hmm. and the curious thing about withdrawals is they're not user transactions they're like system level operations that happen so you need to be able to connect to different api endpoints in order to um, correctly kind of like keep track of that activity got it um so girly i think is going to be a really important testnet for the community
0: So, and you mentioned that we don't think there's going to be a lot of, like, ETH cell pressure. Uh, Christine and our colleague, shout out Kelly Greer at Galaxy, wrote uh, a report about this. Yeah. What would Shanghai, I forget what we called it, what would Shanghai's, like, effect be on ETHUSD? Where you did some of the math here um, and, you know, using various assumptions. um, Do we still think that's true? I mean, run us through what you thought about for that analysis, right? You've got staked ETH and then you've got the rewards primarily, right? These two pieces of
1: ETH that they have.
2: And our conclusion and our assumption was that you wouldn't see a lot of people unstaking their ETH. And primarily because most of the ETH staked is still underwater, it's not um, ETH price is a lot lower than it was when people had staked around the majority of staked ETH. Um, there's also liquid staking derivatives where if people wanted the liquidity, they could have traded off their staked ETH for ETH already. If um, they were
0: using Lido or something yeah. like that, right? So
2: for that and a couple other reasons, we had argued that we wouldn't see a lot of unstaking activity, but we would probably see um, Ethereum validators. Take Take um, some profit from rewards. Yep. And rewards are really what's going to become liquid immediately at Shanghai. So there's no unsaving. queue. There's no
0: execute or anything, right?
2: There's not a queue, but there is a limit to how many withdrawals the network can process at one time. They can't just withdraw, like, the rewards for every single validator in one go. It's, like, 16 withdrawals that are able to be processed per block, and every block is – gets processed at tw- in but that's still just seconds. a couple
0: days right ultimately if, if everyone tried to withdraw all the rewards right away yeah it wouldn't be like months we're talking a few days right
2: yeah yeah, yeah. we're talking a few days um, but that also there's a little bit of a caveat there because some validators have to update their withdrawal credentials they have to specify an address to which right. those rewards can be deposited but the point is there's about a million eth that's going be um, become liquid as a result Pretty of quickly. rewards yeah, yeah. Um, and to to find the number like the percentage of Of rewards that we think are going to be sold it's really anecdotal we're talking to validator node operators we're talking to independent home stakers we're talking to um people we know who have staked on the beacon chain
0: say what are you going to do with these exactly
2: and anecdotally we're hearing a number between 30 to 50 percent of their rewards these validators just want to sell yeah um And the rest, you know, it's a mixture between restaking, um, putting it into DeFi, holding on to it. There's a variety of other kind of reasons for what they want to do with that ETH. Um, So... In our analysis, we conservatively estimated that 50 percent of rewards would be sold off um, like the week after Shanghai or throughout the week of Shanghai. So you will see a little bit of sell pressure, I think, immediately after the upgrade, but not a lot. Um, And then I think you're going to see a ton more um, staking activity because now the the. kind of the the uncertainty around when you're going to be able to withdraw your stake is removed. We're already seeing a ton of staking activity going into Lido. Lido experienced, you know, the largest inflows of of ETH ever a couple of, of weeks ago. Um, and I think you're just going to see the staking rate. So basically the percentage of total ETH supply staked dramatically Which is now what, like Shanghai.
0: 14 or 15 percent, right? Is that 15? Yeah. 15 percent. Yeah. Um, if
2: not sixteen, honestly. And, and
0: and one other thing to mention, you, you said that you didn't think that um, there'll be a lot of actual unstaking of the actual staked ETH.
2: No, uh, if anything, I think there's going to be more ETH staked. Right, because yes. the some
0: of the some of the um, the uncertainty is now removed. Yes. Um, and and when you mentioned the uh, underwater, right, the price is a lot lower today than when a lot of the ETH was staked. I think it was like sixty percent of the ETH was staked at higher prices. Yeah, exactly. Um, what's the idea there? Is it that like you don't have to sell, you don't have gains to realize. So if anything, you have losses to realize. And, but also you were early, you're probably an ETH bull. So.
2: Yeah. I know, think if there had been you'd, quite a lot You'd be a, a forced of... seller.
0: To be selling at these low levels, you'd have to be like in significant distress.
2: Which, which is the idea. with liquid staking derivatives today that are trading almost at, at on par with ETH. Like if you were a forced seller, there are ways to sell your ETH. But
0: like people who stake during Beacon Chain only era pre-unlocks, pre-unstaking like. They're long-term ETH bulls, right? Yeah. So they're not like, oh, crap, get me out of this ETH position. Much less likely to be so than, say, just a normal person. Right. Um, That makes sense. This Um,
2: bear market is kind of a blessing in disguise. Because if we were in a bull market and ETH prices were a lot higher, I think there could be a lot more reason to sell now.
0: Right. So then the staking participation rate, um, you think it'll go higher because it's de-risked a bit once Shanghai happens. Also, right, when we look at other proof-of-stake networks, they have significantly higher staking rates than ETH, right? Yeah. Do you think it'll get that high to like 50%?
2: Well, not immediately. But you talk about this all the time, Alex, that as a proof-of-stake – in a proof-of-stake blockchain, if you're not staking your asset, you're essentially being diluted out of your holdings. And with liquid stake derivatives, I don't know why anyone would hold their ETH and be diluted out of their – out of out of ETH when you could stake it and still have the liquidity of that staked asset. And so I think it doesn't make sense for the staking rate of Ethereum to stay low. I think the easier liquid, the more more adopted liquid stake derivatives become, um, you're going to see, I, there's no reason not to have 100% of the stake. I mean, if you ETH trust the stake, the, the,
0: the, staked, staked. the LSD, the liquid staking derivative token, trust it, right? Like, you know, I don't know, it's decentralized enough or whatever. Um, right. Shouldn't you just be staking everything and then only using staked ETH for right. everything? I think that is You can't pay for gas and game. staked ETH though, right? So you need ETH for gas. But then it, ETH That's really true. becomes this like this,
2: but there's this gotta be staking and
0: gas protocol. token basically, right? Yeah. And everybody else uses like staked ETH.
2: Also, um, one funny thing when I said that there wasn't really a lot of regulatory talk, a lot of people corrected me for saying liquid staking derivatives yeah. because of regulatory concerns like now – We call them either liquid staking tokens or liquid staking receipts.
0: Oh, they don't like the idea. Derivatives
2: is a taboo word now. I
0: mean, it makes sense. Obviously, derivatives (laughs) are financial instruments. um, But it's funny that they like, you know...
2: (laughs) as a a political correctness um. yes i mean yeah
0: they they, and it's funny because actually this happens all the time yeah so you have like real world assets that people talk about tokenizing bring on chain like maker dow right and they call them rwa but that's that already exists that's risk-weighted assets in traditional finance right so and they don't mean um like derivatives like they mean in financial instruments they mean derivations they mean that these tokens are derived from liquid st- from staking, right? They're liquid derivations.
2: Yeah.
0: And so it's like they they you know they weren't wrong, but I I get that sensitivity. Um, I I would say they're they're not like forwards. They're not they're not like financial derivatives. They're really sort of like they are more like receipts.
2: Yeah. Um, they give you rights to stake ETH.
0: Like yeah, yeah. So it's a little different. That's funny though. Um, <laughs> Um, what OK, so along the same lines, we we're talking about staking rates like there was news, I guess we've covered this in the past when it was first announced. But I guess in the last day or two, um, this institutional staking project, which I think used to be called Alluvial. It now sounds like they call themselves the Liquid Staking Collective. But it's some kind of partnership involving Coinbase and and I think Figment. Um, I think so. and Something and something else. Um, they announced their own liquid staking project. Uh, token.
2: <laughs> yeah, I think that like the, yesterday. Yeah, when we covered this, the interesting part of this was that it was targeted towards institutions. There hadn't been a lot of liquid staking as a service back in 2020, 2021 that was targeted away from retail towards institutions. Mainly because institutions didn't really want to stake on Ethereum at the time either. Um the merge, planning for the merge was a little bit it was a little bit chaotic. Yeah. There was there were developers were going back and forth like how we're gonna actually transition this thing into proof of stake. You weren't able to withdraw your stake at all. Um but I mean it was
0: mostly like, you know, the guys from Bankless and yeah. like and like um and like Anthony Sasano, like it was like long term like Technically savvy ETH bulls. Vitalik yeah. was staking back then. Right? There
2: wasn't a huge, I think, customer base right. or appetite for institutional staking. But now, take the announcement of the SEC cracking down on Kraken. Calling their liquid staking program, like basically shutting down their liquid staking program. Um, I think with Shanghai coming up, Shanghai de-risking a lot of staking activity on Ethereum. Now suddenly there is a lot more appetite for an institutional-grade staking solution, mm-hmm. and that is why I think we're seeing the announcement from Coinbase. I think that's why we're seeing more progress on the alluvial project. Because we haven't
0: heard anything about it in like six months. I think if no, it, I don't haven't. have the episode number, but we talked about this on Galaxy Brains, I think, last summer, so summer 22. Um, and then we really haven't heard anything about it since then. But
2: until so recently, until yesterday, ass- until
0: yesterday. So we have to assume there's been real progress. But also, you're saying the timing of the announcement makes sense.
2: Yeah. And I think it's interesting to question how Coinbase is going to square a staking service like Alluvial or the, liquid, the one from the Liquid Staking Collective with the staking service that they already have, which is geared towards retail, and the potential that their retail staking service could be could scrutinized by yeah, scrutinized. The SEC,
0: right? Uh, we're not going to go deep into this topic necessarily now. The Kraken and the and the staking as a service, but um, Coinbase notably has pushed back heavily, said that their program doesn't look like Kraken. So right. we, we and I don't think we've heard any news since that. So. Um, as far as I know, you can still stake on coinbase or ethereum and 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 they have their own liquid staking token, CBeth. Yeah, um, so this is also interesting. So this will be like a institution's only liquid staking token. Well, or, I think or something
2: only the institutions can be the node operators for this staking program. I'm not a hundred percent sure if the holders of the liquid staking token also, also have to be. Right institutions, I think they have to be at the very least be KYC'd and AML.
0: It's interesting. So I think at it's the very a, least, it remains to be seen how the this the announcement of this that this institutional staking as a service uh provider will have its own liquid staking token. Yeah. Remains to be seen what that means exactly. But interesting nonetheless. Um yeah. it's also funny because like a lot of the other coins have staking as a service and stake and they don't have a Shanghai. Most of them you can already enter and exit the staking uh you know, validators can enter next to the network, right? It's really the the Shanghai question is an ETH question only, right? So that's the other thing I think about when I think about um, Shanghai and unlocks is like um, where, uh, how does this affect the general like economics of Ethereum, right? We don't like at scale, right?
2: Yeah, it's going to stress test a part of Ethereum's economics that have never been tested before, which is the the ability to withdraw your stake, the ability to fully exit from the network, and and to be clear, like validators on Lido, validators on Rocket Pool are not able to unstake. People can't actually redeem right. their steth for ETH right now, and so there are certain smart contracts that will be tested for the first time on Lido. Lido v two is a big upgrade that we saw just a couple days ago. They had a bug, an unknown bug in their withdrawal contracts for Stakematic. Um, so these are are big. This this is tech that needs to be tested. So yeah. I am I am very interested in how the staking unstaking activity activity will go, and I'm also interested in seeing how the bifurcation of the liquid staking market between permission KYC AML participants and not will also then trickle into say a bifurcated or fragmented DeFi market on top of these two existing say liquid staking derivative, well, I shouldn't say derivative, but receipts. Um, Because at the basis of what staking does is it allows like for a risk-free interest rate on your ETH. Then on top of that, you can start to create other financial instruments. It's very interesting. Yeah. But you have to make sure that the underlying asset is kosher, is like solid enough that you can build these other financial instruments on top of
0: a lot uh, happening and a lot to be seen in the next month or so too with Shanghai um, will be very exciting, I think and I mean, I, it will really close a chapter. This is the completion of the merge when it happens, um, which is I think we all agreed was the, probably the biggest um, you know protocol development story of 2022, right Certainly. yeah,
2: until developers yeah. decide to change it again.
0: <laughs> Christine Kim, our friend from Galaxy Research, thank you so much as always.
2: Of course, my pleasure.
0: That's it for Galaxy Brains this week. Thank you, as always, for listening. Hey, make sure you check out our content, galaxy.com slash research. Tons of reports there. And follow us on Twitter at GLXY Research. We're always tweeting out some interesting stuff about crypto. But that's it. That's all we've got. We'll see you next week. Have a great weekend. Thanks for listening to Galaxy Brains, the weekly podcast from Galaxy Research. If you enjoy the show, please like, rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. To follow Galaxy Research, sign up for our weekly newsletter at gdr.email, read our content at galaxy.com slash research, and follow us on Twitter at glxyresearch. See you next week.